to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Truth and Liberty live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris, and it's just so awesome to have you with us today. I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Uh, this is my first program after the new year, uh, and so I just wanted to give a quick shout-out and wish you all a very happy 2024. We are already hitting the ground running here at Truth and Liberty, and it is going to be a fantastic year. It's an election year, presidential election year. There's going to be some great things this year. I'm, I'm convinced that this is going to be a transformational year uh, for our country, and a lot of great stuff is going to happen. I wanted to, um, before we get started, wanted to mention uh, some events that we have coming up here at the ministry. Uh, well, the, actually not at the ministry, uh, but where Andrew Womack is going to be appearing and speaking. And I'm going to be with Andrew at one of these. It's the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America event. Uh, Susan B. Anthony List uh, and their associated entity called the Charlotte Lozier Institute is the largest pro-life organization in America. And they do so much incredible incredible good to promote the cause of life for the unborn. Uh, and they're going to have an event in Dallas, Texas on January 15th. So come in right up here. And Andrew Womack is going to be uh, interviewed and I'm going to be present there participating in that. So it's going to be a fantastic thing. You can find out more information on their website at sbaprolife.com. Org. And then also our good friend and dear brother E.W. Jackson uh, is, uh, is going to be holding an event called the Stand Foundation and Called Church Service. And Andrew's going to be ministering there on January 27th. If you live in the Chesapeake, Virginia area, I want to encourage you to come out to that, uh, that church service on January 27th and hear Andrew and, and Bishop Jackson. And uh, it's going to be great. You can find out more at the website Stand. Uh, America.us or the called, the called.org. All right. Well, um, last thing I want to mention before we get rolling here is this is a live call in show. All our regular viewers, you know that. But just want to remind you there's a number on the top right hand corner of your screen. Please feel free to call in and join in on today's program and conversation with questions or comments. We, it's an interactive show and we would absolutely love to hear from you. And then also, if you need prayer today, uh, also I want to encourage you to take advantage of Andrew's army of trained prayer ministers that are standing by 24-7 to agree with you in prayer. Just call the number you see on the screen at the bottom there, 719-635-1111. All right, guys. Well, I'm really excited because our guest today, as a first-time guest on Truth and Liberty, is um, uh, an amazing woman that I heard speak for the very first time at the uh, Wall Builders Pro-Family Legislators Conference uh, in November of last year. And uh, I was attending as, a, as an exhibitor and speaker, and I just heard Katie Faust uh, address 
some subjects related to the rights of children in our culture in a way and with power that I have never heard before in my life. And I've been around this stuff for a long time. Katie Faust is the founder and president of Them Before Us, a global movement defending children's rights to a biological mother and father in the home. She publishes, speaks, testifies, uh, and, and writes widely on matters of justice for children. She's been published in Newsweek, USA Today, The Federalist, uh, uh, The Daily Signal, The Washington Examiner, and many other publications. And she's also the author of a book called Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. And uh, I wish that I had a chance to read that before you came on, Katie, but I got to be honest, I haven't, but I'm going to. And I'm just so glad you've joined us today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute delight to be with you. Thanks for letting me speak to you and your live audience. Uh, I want to amen to the Q&A because I just think Q&A is where, it at, where it's at. So hopefully you guys will uh, take us at our word and dial in. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely livens things up and it's great for other people to hear your questions. It's, a, it's part of the learning uh, process for sure. Well, uh, Katie, you've got <clears throat> uh, this organization that you lead called Them Before Us. And uh, I've spent about three hours today on that site. And I just want to say it is a, a phenomenal resource. Uh, and there, there's a category, a drop down on that site uh, called Fast Facts. And um, th there's so much information in there in these articles that you've got under that tab. I want to recommend to every single one of our viewers right now, jot this website down, them before us. You need to go there and read these uh, these articles that she's got posted there because it's looking at the subject of marriage and family and children from a from the child's perspective and uh, and it's just absolutely eye-opening Katie can you share with us just to get things started today what is your organization really about them before us and uh, what are we talking about here well, when it comes to marriage and family issues, um, we've got a cultural problem, we've got a legal problem, and we also have a technological problem. And it is that whenever we conceive of marriage and family questions, whether it's the definition of marriage or divorce or a variety of modern families like same-sex parenting or polygamy, the rise of cohabitation, all of the dystopic reproductive technologies that are currently taking place and also the ones that are coming in the future, and even the way that we think about adoption, in all of those different areas. We obsessively focus on what adults want, usually their feelings, their identity, their desires. And very often the children and who they are, how they come to be and what they need are completely disregarded. Mm -hmm. In the marriage and family world, the mantra seems to be us, the adults, before them, the children. And so what we do at them before us is we center every conversation around the rights and well-being of the children. Specifically, the right to be known and loved by both people responsible for their existence, their natural right to be in relationship with and raised by their own mother and father whenever possible. And the amazing thing about using this kind of a lens through which to view all marriage and family questions is you get the right personal conclusions and you get the right policy decisions in 100% of cases. In this children's rights world, we say, 
Children have obviously a natural right to life, but they have rights on this side of the womb as well. And their next primary right to their right to life is their right to be known and loved and raised by their mom and dad. We see when we look at the sociological evidence that this stacks the deck in favor of children's physical, emotional, mental, academic, and relational thriving. In fact, we really are not going to be able to have any level of social health or national health unless we can secure these fundamental rights for children. So that's what we do with them before us. We frame every marriage and family issue from the perspective of what about the kid? We first begin with children, who they are, how they come to be, what they need and their natural rights. And then we issue cultural recommendations, policy prescriptions um, and legislative action based on the best interest of the child. Well, the, um, yeah, it's amazing. It's like once you say it, it sounds so common sense. Uh, but how is it that our entire world has kind of been turned uh, topsy-turvy on this subject, that we're looking at all of these questions from the vantage point of how the adults feel and what the adults want, not from what is best for the kids. Like take, uh, for example, um, like you mentioned, cohabitation, right? Well, I'm gonna shack up with you know my girlfriend here because that's what we want and marriage is old fashioned and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, she's got a couple kids, but you know, so what does that matter? And, but if you turn it around and look at it from the kid's perspective, it's obvious what the right thing to do is, isn't it? Yeah, well, how did we get here is a great question. And I would say there's a variety of variables. Number one was the rise of you know what some have coined um, this expressive individualism, that what the adults want, their own individual, their expressiveness, whether especially in relation to their sexual identity or sexual desires, has in essence, taking the place of God in our society. It is the highest good. It is the thing under which everything else must be sacrificed. But because sex is connected to children, when you make sex God, whether it's adult sexual desire, feeling, identity, it is always children mm. that are going to be sacrificed to that God. We see that primarily in the abortion debate, right? The free yeah. love, free sex movement has, as its necessary price, the lives of children. You can also take that into the marriage and family world, right? When we elevate adult sexual desire or identity to the ultimate good, whether it's wanting to cut costs on rent and shacking up together, or wanting to form a family where there's two men or two women that will always exclude a child's mother and father. When you look at this me-centric world, when you say my sexual desires are the ultimate aim, then of course you're going to have an us before them mentality. But the other aspect of this, why are we here? And it's because kids can't advocate for themselves. Mm. They are completely dependent on us to advocate on their behalf, to speak up for their rights, to explain and advocate on behalf of their needs. They can't do it. And so most of the time, in almost all these conversations, their rights and needs and natural longings get absolutely railroaded because they literally are incapable of defending themselves. So we've got this rise of adult-centric uh, worldview, really, coupled with a victimization of the one demographic that can't write amicus briefs, that can't submit <laughs> legislative testimonies, that can't start blogs, that can't do interviews on live radio shows, you know, with hosts that would like to figure out what exactly is going on here. And so Them Before Us exists to give a voice to the party that literally cannot defend itself, but for whom the consequences are the greatest when we get these questions wrong. Wow. Um, fascinating. So. 
You know, we've been fighting, uh, so many of us have been fighting the, the abortion fight for decades now. And, and it, it's usually, you know, the, the central point on the pro-life side is the right of life for the child, the unborn child. The argument on the other side is, well, what about the mom and her rights? And they're always, it's almost, it's 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a right of convenience of some form. And I don't mean to trivialize the seriousness of it, but compared to life, it's, it is, um, it, it's not, it, you know, it loses every time. But what you're doing, Katie, is you're taking that same um, thing and you're, you're going after birth and you're looking, we're still looking at kids and kids' rights, but you're looking at the marriage relationship, the family structure, and you're analyzing it from that same perspective. And I, uh, I just think that what you're doing here is, is like transformational, ref, revolutionary almost in, in our thought process. I mean, I'm an attorney and I remember studying family law in law school and they were saying, well, when you're talking about child custody, the, uh, what's the best for the child is always the standard. But I never saw it, I've never seen it applied uh, not never. Sometimes people talk about it in divorce. You know, you stay married for the kids, but you hardly ever see that in other contexts. It's never brought up in the question of same-sex marriage. It's never brought up in the question of in vitro fertilization. Never brought up in the, you know, in uh, in other other scenarios, surrogacy, for example. So I think this is just fascinating. But let me just remind people uh, what your website is, so they can make a note of that again. Um, and uh, can you give us that website? I think we're going to pull it up here on a lower third, but real quick, what is your website at Them Before Us? It's thembeforeus.com. And right. I hope that you'll come and subscribe because we've got a lot going on and you should know all about it. Okay, well, what? tell us about it. What kind of things are you guys doing? Oh, baby, what we're doing. Um, first of all, let me just, just put a cap on what you said, which is exactly right. You know, if children's rights, if anti-abortion work was children's rights 1.0, Marriage and family is children's rights 2.0. It mm. is the exact same principle. You actually put your finger right on the same principle, which is adults suffer incredible hardship, fear, concern. Um, they have desires, longings, losses, and unplanned pregnancies or challenging diagnoses. We can recognize and we can empathize, and we should, with adults who are facing those kinds of challenges. But no amount of adult desire, longing, or loss justifies violating a child's right to life. And I actually think that the right to life movement has paved the way for how I think the marriage and family movement should play out from here on out, which mm. is we understand that adults are in very challenging situations, struggling marriages, dealing with same-sex attraction, grappling with infertility, the, the skyrocketing rise of unwanted singleness that's taking place. But no amount of adult longing, loss, suffering, feelings, or identification justifies severing a child from one or both of their biological parents. In both of those situations, we will elevate the natural rights of children and defend them and insist that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, conform to the rights of children. Because the only other option is for children to sacrifice for adults. And that is a recipe for injustice. So we are all about justice. We're all about justice for the least of these. Thank God there's hundreds of amazing organizations defending children's right to life. It is time to defend children's rights on this side of the womb as well. So um, I just really want to encourage your listeners to 
take on that new view of looking at marriage and family issues because it is a matter we that's what we do we frame everything as matters of justice for children because it is absolutely so um let's i'd like to kind of just walk through if we can some of these issue areas uh the different forms in the modern era of where people can have and raise children and look at it through this lens with you and and just help people begin to see the marriage and family um issue in uh, in this way. So how about if we talk about surrogacy first? Let, can you tell us what is surrogacy exactly? I think some of us who don't think about this very often, what is that? Is that in vitro? What, you know, what exactly is surrogate parenting? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's very important that conservatives in general and Christians specifically get this exactly right. Um, let me back up and lay a little bit of a foundation first, because when you understand these fundamentals, most of these other family formation, technological, um, legal changes answer themselves. So the basis of our advocacy is that children have a natural right to their mother and father. Um, while this sounds a little bit foreign to American ears, it's actually recognized in the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Every country, except the United States, has recognized that children have a right to both biological parents. Um, and we make a case for that in our book. In chapter one, we ex explain exactly why they have a natural right to their mother and father, in the same way that children have a natural right to life. So then we go on and we talk about the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship. And I say this as an adoptive mom, I say this as a woman who was the assistant director at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world, in Colorado. Um, wow. And I know the importance and the value of adoption as a child-centric institution, but I will also tell you that I can't fully compensate for everything that my son has lost. There is a value in the biological relationship between parent and child, and it can be boiled down into three different things. Number one, biological parents grant something children crave, and that is their biological identity. It is very hard for kids to answer the question, who am I, if they cannot answer the question, whose am I? And this is why adoption agencies have swung drastically away from closed adoption to now 95% of adoptions are open adoptions because children need access to that kinship network to stabilize and formulate their own identity. Mm. The second reason why biology matters in the parent-child relationship is because biological parents are statistically the most connected to, invested in, and protective of kids. Now, there's horrible exceptions to this. There are negligent and abusive biological parents but any other family structure, anytime you include an unrelated, unrelated adult in a child's life, rates of abuse and neglect skyrocket. So connecting children to both biological parents whenever possible is actually a critical plank of child welfare and investment. And then finally, if you can unite children to both biological parents, you automatically get the perfect gender balance in the home 100% of the time. And moms offer distinct benefits to children when it comes to raising them, talking to them, disciplining them, playing with them, caring for them. Dads do equally important but drastically different things when it comes to raising kids and how they speak and how they discipline and how they 
wire them for gross motor skills versus moms that wire kids for fine motor skills. So first of all, you understand the importance of biology and the parent-child relationship. Those are non-negotiables. These are things that line up with natural law, the highest level of social science that we have, and the testimonies of children themselves. So first we answer that question. Now, let's take a look at surrogacy. We have these truisms that biological parents distinctly benefit children. Moms and dads are different and offer distinct and complementary benefits. Children get their biological identity, something that they need to formulate their own sense existential self. So what's the problem with surrogacy, right? I mean, we love babies. Isn't surrogacy just about babies? But the answer is that's not what surrogacy is. When you really look at surrogacy, it's about on-demand designer babies shift worldwide. That's what surrogacy is. And the easiest way to understand this is surrogacy takes what should be one woman, mother, and splices her into three purchasable and optional women. The genetic mother who provides the egg, right? That's the biological identity component. The birth mother who gestates the child, she lays the foundation for trust and attachment. The baby is bonding with her whether or not the baby's related. And the baby will long for her smell, her milk, her body, her heartbeat right on the day that they're born. And finally, the social mother is the woman who provides that gender-specific nurture care and care and love that the child craves and maximizes their development. So surrogacy says, which of these three women do you need? Which one do you not have? Which one do you want to pay for or purchase or rent? Which one do you just want to cut out altogether? And some kids will only lose the birth mother. They'll only lose the trust and attachment and have to start from scratch. But many kids will lose all three. They'll be disconnected from their genetic mother, they'll be severed from their birth mother, and they'll be starved of a mother in their daily life altogether. So it's amazing then, uh, a, a child that is, con- that is born through surrogacy in, in, is going to lose their uh, attachment in some form or fashion to their biological mother. Is that inevitable, right? That's what that is. It's by design, uh, and it's not just by design, it's commercially inflicted. So this idea that there's all kinds of altruistic surrogacy arrangements taking place where no one's getting paid, that happens occasionally. But very few women will offer up their bodies to what is always a high-risk pregnancy for nine and a half months for free. And that's why we're seeing a push for commercial surrogacy, because we need these economically vulnerable women to rent out their bodies and adopt and accept these high-risk pregnancies. And so the child will always lose a relationship with the only person they know the day that they are born. And it's not going to be because of tragedy, like sometimes takes place in adoption. It will be intentionally and commercially. Um, And it really veers into the world of child trafficking. Oh, wow. Okay, we'll put a put a sticky note on that one. Let's come back to that because that's a big statement that you just made. Um, but on this surrogacy, it, it, uh, we, we see the same problem with sperm donors, right? Um, or uh, what are some other manifestations of, of this? Um, um, in vitro fertilization or, or uh, you know, what do they call them? Um, uh, beaker babies or, or what do you call it? Test tube babies. That's what it is. So, I mean, right. So yeah. uh, is this the same problem in all of those scenarios? 
Yeah, so when we understand the importance of biology in the parent-child relationship, we say that there's no form of third-party reproduction, where you're using a third party to create a child, somebody else's egg, somebody else's sperm, somebody else's womb, that is going to lead to health and wholeness for children. All of those third-party arrangements will force children to lose a relationship with an adult to whom they have a natural right. So mm. a sperm donor child will retain a relationship maybe with their genetic mother, probably with their birth mother, but they're going to lose a relationship with their father, half their genetics, half of their medical history. Many of these children are going to be raised in fatherless homes. And we, we don't need any more data about how those kids fare. They are disproportionately and drastically more at risk for suicide, high school dropouts, homelessness, poverty, mental health disorders, teen pregnancy, fatherless children, are probably the underlying cause for every major social issue that we are facing today. And sperm donation just commercializes that process in a lot of different cases. Egg donation, and I say donation because nobody's donating, everyone's buying or selling. This is a marketplace of humans. Uh, egg donation does the same thing, cuts children off from half of their genetic identity, and very often those children will be raised in totally motherless homes. This is always a violation of the rights of children. Um, so you also have the attending issue of IVF, which is just making babies in a laboratory. And unfortunately, what we see in those situations is this is not pro-child, pro-life technology. Only about 7% of lab-created babies are going to be born alive. The majority are going to be discarded, donated to research, frozen in, you know, permanently deemed to be the wrong sex and discarded, many of these children, if they do survive the thaw and the transfer, will be selectively reduced. That is aborted because they are not developing or there's too many developing. I mean, when Dobbs passed, what we saw was an absolute panic among fertility doctors in red states who said, wait a second, if there is a trigger law in Alabama that says life begins at conception, we can't do business in this state. Our business is built on grading, selecting, and researching on tiny little embryonic bodies. We cannot operate if life begins at conception and we defend every one of those lives. IVF itself, even when there isn't somebody else's sperm, egg, or womb involved, is not pro-child and it's not pro-life. Well, so, um Katie, we've got about two and a half minutes left in this segment. I wanted to uh, remind our viewers to call in with questions. The number's on your screen, 719-619-2341. And uh, we'll take, uh, start taking calls a little bit later in the show uh, after the break. But Katie, I, I really think we ought to kind of break this down a little bit in this whole world of um, artificial uh, pregnancy and reproduction or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, the first one we're talking about is surrogacy. And that's where, um, uh, uh, say, a man and a woman, they, uh, uh, they fertilize the woman's egg with the man's sperm in the laboratory and then implant that in another woman's womb. Is that what surrogacy is? And that's one of the many forms of surrogacy. Oh, yes. there's many forms. Okay. See, I'm, I'm, I need to get educated here. And, but then we have uh, sperm donation. And that's where, say, a man and a woman can't get pregnant. Now, or it could just be a woman who wants to have a baby on her own. But, um, and they go and they can actually purchase the sperm of an, of an unknown man and create a human mm -hmm. being that way. And then um, what, what's another uh, uh, possibility here? So you've got sperm donation, 
surrogacy, and I guess eggs. You can do the same thing with a woman's eggs. She can sell her eggs. And, and so <laughs> what happens to the child from these different scenarios specifically when they, when they um, like, like, let's say a, a surrogate, surrogate what, mom, you, did, you didn't give birth to me? Who, who gave birth to me? What does that do to a child's um, psychology, if you will? Well, you know what would be nice? is if we tracked and studied these children. Mm. It's the first time our species is creating babies in a laboratory, creating babies without sex. And there are virtually no requirements for big fertility to share any information about who these children are, where they go, what they do with their surplus embryos. This industry is absolutely resistant to any kind of oversight or regulation, whether it is tracking these babies. I mean, you know, we track when people uh, donate their kidney, to see how they do in terms of health. We also prohibit the use of money in organ donation because we understand that it creates a conflict of interest and that you're gonna get very poor people selling their organs, which is why there's a similarity between very poor women selling their wombs here. So we don't have tons of information on how children fare in third-party reproductive situations because we're not studying it. Mm -hmm. So we just have to go based on the scant surveys and data that we have. And what we know is, Generally, kids are suffering. Well, so um, there's a chart that you have on uh, in, in one of your documents on your website uh, that I thought was really interesting. And it's um, um, at the top, it says percentage of adults in agreement with the following statements. And then you've got three categories. You've got adults raised by biological parents, donor conceived adults and adopted adults. So I guess these are adults who um, they're, they're raised now, they're not in the home anymore, but they're looking back and they're responding to questions about how they felt as kids. And some of them had biological parents, some of them had um, uh, you know, donors uh, for sperm or egg, and then uh, the other are adopted. And, and on this chart, you're, you're showing that, um, uh, for example, number one, it looks like donor-conceived adults, 48% of them said that when I see friends with their biological fathers and mothers, it made me feel sad. Um, so uh, th that's just the first question. There's about eight of them here. Another, the next one says, it hurts when I hear other people talk about their genealogical background. 53% of donor-conceived adults and then uh, adopted are the best uh, out of all three, but that's a really adoption is a different category. But adoption is a, yeah, it's an absolutely different category. So you just pulled, good for you for finding the best study that we have on outcomes for children conceived through third party reproduction. That study is called My Daddy's Name is Donor. It adheres to the highest levels of social science in terms of um, drawing participants at random, surveying them over time, evaluating the actual outcomes of the children rather than asking the adults how they think their kids are doing. And that is the study that shows us it, children with married biological parents do fare best, um, but adoptees are next, which is amazing because adoptees are being raised by neither biological parent when the sperm donor kids are being always being raised by a biological mom. So why is it that the adoptees do better? And the answer is, because in both situations, the adopted kids and the sperm donor kids, they've experienced a wound. They have both been severed from one or both parents to whom they have a natural right. But the adopted kids are being raised by the adults who are seeking to mend their wound. 
but the donor-conceived kids are being raised by adults who inflicted their wound. Wow. So that creates a very distinct psychological burden on children. It isolates them in their grief and their pain in mm. a way that adoption does not. So we spend quite a bit of time in chapter nine of our book making a huge distinction between why adoption is pro-child and adheres to the rights of kids, whereas big fertility and reproductive technologies disregards the rights of children and functions as a marketplace in humans. These two things from the child's perspective are drastically different. Wow. Well, we, we've missed our break, but let's go ahead and take it now. That's, that's my fault. I went on too long. But uh, we're going to take a short break now, Katie. To our viewers, guys, our, our guest today is Katie Faust, the founder and president of Them Before Us. And we're going to be back in about 90 seconds, uh, continuing this fascinating discussion. And uh, be sure to call in with your questions and comments, 719-619-2341. We'll be right back. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we have big plans to make a big impact. If you want to be a part of turning our nation back to God, I want to invite you to become a supporter of Truth and Liberty. You can go on our website at truthandliberty.net to the donate page and make a gift there. And you can also sign up to be uh, make a recurring automatic gift of $5 or more per month, and then you'll become a Truth and Liberty member. And uh, our gifts to Truth and Liberty are not tax deductible, but I promise you God sees your generosity. So go to Truth and Liberty and become a member today. Have you been praying about how to make your business your mission field? GospelTruth.tv Business features leadership and financial stewardship training from industry experts. Learn the next steps to building wealth and using it to grow God's kingdom. Tune in Saturdays to GospelTruth.tv Business and watch anytime with GospelTruth.tv Premium. Visit GospelTruth.tv today for biblical teaching you can trust. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. All right, well, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris, and our guest today is Katie Faust, the founder and president of Them Before Us, uh, a fascinating ministry, an amazing perspective that she has on the question of marriage, sex, and family. Yeah, I'm getting a sense, I don't want to overstate this, Katie, you, you probably didn't come up with all of these concepts on your own, maybe you did. But this seems like a word of the Lord for this day and hour. It's like a key, an answer from God on a way to combat. I mean, all, Christians everywhere, we're, we're looking at what's happening to the morals and the structure of our civilization and people disregarding biblical values and standards um, for sex and marriage and, and everything else. And, and it's like all, everything we say falls on deaf ears. But this perspective is hard to refute. It's statistically backed up. It's, it's uh, scientific and, and reasoned. And the beautiful thing about it is that it, it it's, a, it's like an archaeological dig that uncovers a proof of some fact in the Bible, you know, like the crossing of the Red Sea or something. It's like, yes, yeah, see, told you so. This is what God said from the beginning. But I want to go back to something you said about surplus embryos. I, I, I can't let that go 
without you uh, unpacking that a little bit. These medical companies that are in the fertility business, they are actually taking the bought and paid for sperm and bought and paid for eggs of living human beings and create and fertilizing them or you know whatever that's called, creating an embryo in, an, in a laboratory, but they don't just do one at a time and then implant it, do they? How no. many do they create and what happens there? So the answer is create as many as you can so that we can choose the ones that are the most fit or then you can have your choice between boys and girls and the ones that are not fit, we can donate to research and usually towards improving fertility you know, treatments. So you're destroying little lives so that you can create more lab-created little lives in the future. And then the ones that we don't destroy because they didn't make the grade or they were the wrong sex, the ones that seem fit, but that are unwanted for right now, we will freeze and we will store. And then you can choose, do you wanna implant one, do you implant two right now? And then you can have six that are left over. You can have 16 that are left over, whatever it is. And so then you can come back and you can get as many of those babies as you want later to implant for future process, if you have the money, because you know, you've already gone into debt with this one fertility treatment. Are you gonna have another $15,000, $20,000 to try this again in the future? A lot of people don't. So. What we've got right now is the ones that haven't been donated to research, the ones that were not immediately thought, the ones that were not immediately discarded, the ones that did make it through the gauntlet and were implanted, um, the ones that were not. We've got about 1.5 million of those embryos on ice right now, right? The surplus embryos, the surplus people that are in storage, supposedly for future use. But the reality is that Many of these kids have been on ice for 30 years, and 20 to 40% of them have been functionally abandoned. Nobody's paying the storage fee. They can't track down the parents. Like, we've got a human rights crisis on ice all across this country. So I just circle back to, I know this is a very challenging topic, and I'm sure that you've got people on the phone waiting to ask questions about it, but if you believe children's life begins at the moment of conception, you will be against virtually all reproductive technologies because these are not child-friendly ways of making and welcoming the next generation into existence. You, you, you said that these fertility docs or whoever they are, I don't even know if they're doctors, that are evaluating fitness, right? Uh, yep. What are they looking at? It's just a microscopic embryo almost, right? So what do they, how do they evaluate it? Is it based on the genetics of that particular child? Oh yeah. So first of all, you know, you were talking about you can select eggs and sperm. Yes, like right now, if you are listening to this, get your phone out and Google egg donor catalog and you can shop for your child's genetic mother. You can filter the results based on hair color, Ivy League education, whether or not she wants to be known or unknown, how tall she is. You can filter her like an Amazon product. You can do the same thing with sperm donation. So first of all, there's a commercial aspect to selecting your ideal child right from the get-go. But then once you determine which sperm and egg you're gonna use, whether it's your own or whether it's a third party's sperm and egg, then you get to the point where you create the babies in the lab, you let them develop for three to five days and then you evaluate them. And there's different markers to determine, is this one more likely to survive? Is this one more likely to thrive? And then you can do some genetic testing to see 
hey, what do we want? Do we want a boy or girl? Do we want to select other different aspects of their um, physical characteristics? All of this is possible. That's why I said what we're talking about here is not this is a way to make babies. This is a pathway of making designer babies that can be discarded when they are no longer wanted or no longer desirable or just frozen indefinitely. We are in the place. I mean, like you look at those dystopic novels that you, many of you guys read in high school. We are here. Yeah. That is where we are right now. And it does not get better. Right now, China is developing robot nannies so that once we have artificial womb technology, we'll just be able to have factory floors of them. And the robot nannies will determine their nutrition level and oxygen level, and they will be able to decrease the oxygen and nutrition for the children who are undesirable. We are working at making eggs out of skin cells. So a man can be both biological mother and biological father. Like we, Corny. especially as Christians, need to get this exactly right now because it's not getting better. We, are, we already have a marketplace in children. It is already violating their rights. We already have dystopic situations of children being created specifically for the purpose of exploitation. We have to get this right now because it only gets darker in the future. So the, um, how is this any different than what the Nazis did? How is this any different from eugenics where human beings are being uh, weeded out, killed, preferred based on their their so-called genetics or what we believe to be their genes. I mean, this is no different, is it? No, it's not. And you know, we in our book we have an entire chapter on sperm and egg donation. And the kids themselves, the kids themselves will say, "It bothered me that money changed hands during my mm -hmm. conception." Many of them would say, "I feel like a designer product because." They are a designer product. Mm -hmm. Many of them will say, I actually feel like this is eugenics, right? It's very clear that only certain people get to donate. And you will pay more for a white egg than you will a brown egg. I mean, what you are talking about right now is all of the worst aspects of human civilization, right? Eugenics, human trafficking, like child commodification, all wrapped into one. And unfortunately, we don't have the kind of clarity that we need, largely because we look at it from the adult's perspective rather than the child's perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that sounds like it's absolutely right. So let's shift gears here a little bit, if we could, and let's talk about the question of same-sex parenting. Um, we're told to believe uh, in America today and in basically all the Western world that there's no difference between two people of the same sex raising a child and two people of the opposite sex raising a child, and that it's wrong, even unthinkable, to question such a situation, that homosexuals have uh, a right to adopt and, uh, and all of this sort of thing. Can you, have you looked into this, and can you comment on it? Have I looked into it? Richard, you're in love. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking into it for about 10 years and writing about it and researching it. And we have an entire chapter in our book on same-sex parenting where we evaluate, first of all, the shoddy research that was shoved down all of our throats, supposedly claiming that there is no difference between children raised by same-sex couples versus heterosexual couples. Um, but really, we don't actually even need to look at that. We look at what you and I discussed at the beginning of this interview, what we already know, what sociologists already agree on, which is a child's own mother and father gives them their biological identity 
and that secures their fundamental their their answer to the fundamental question who am i it stabilizes their mental and emotional health it grants them the two people who are the most connected to invested in and protective of them and it gives them the complementarity of mothering and fathering so what is the problem with same-sex parenting well it always cuts children off from one genetic parent so they're always going to be dealing with more identity issues it always introduces an unrelated adult. So statistically, the likelihood of abuse and neglect will increase. That is simply the reality of any household that does not include both biological parents. So they're always going to be in a home where there's one adult who's less connected, less invested, less protective of them. And finally, you're always going to be starving the child of either the maternal love or the paternal love that maximizes their development and satisfies their longings. So we've got in our chapter on same-sex parenting, we've got a couple dozen stories of kids raised by two moms or two dads. And many of these kids had very loving parents, two loving moms, two loving dads. And yet they longed for love from a missing father or a missing mother. It turns out that love does not indeed make a family. It turns mm. out that loss makes those families. Children have to lose something they have a natural right to, they need, and they crave to be in that family. So again, if you want to look at this from the adult's perspective, then, hey, two people of the same sex can commit to one another and be very happy and have a monogamous union till death do they part. But if you want to look at it from the child's perspective, same-sex headed households will always inflict loss on the child and so while you can permit adults to form consensual relationships, we should never have and should never continue to promote any kind of relationship that insists that children lose their mother or father to be in it. You know, in 2015, the United States Supreme Court decided the Obergefell case, which found that somewhere in a document written in 1787 that there's a guaranteed right for two people of the same sex to marry each other. Uh, but uh, sarcasm aside, um, the, the reasoning of the court was 100% predicated, like you said, on the desires of the two adults. The mantra at the time and still today is love is love, right? So it doesn't matter whether it's same sex or heterosex, but you've got some statistics in one of these documents on your website, uh, same sex parents. And it says here that um, in his new family structure study, researcher Mark Regneris concluded on 25 out of 40 outcomes evaluated, there were statistically significant differences between children from intact biological families and those of mothers in lesbian relationships. The lesbian uh, couples had suboptimal outcomes for uh, in, including receiving welfare, needing therapy, infidelity, STIs, sexual victimization, educational attainment, and on and on it goes. And then there's another study you referenced, U.S. National Health Interview Survey, and it says that um, children in same-sex headed families uh, were likely to suffer emotional and behavioral difficulties at a rate of 9.3% compared to 4.4% for regular families, um, and on and on with ADHD, 15.5 compared to 7.1, uh, needing mental health services and special ed, 17.8% compared to 10%. So there's definitely a, a disadvantage to children being in a same-sex uh, home. And it's, you don't need a study. You don't need a study to tell you that. 
you can look at the natural world. Yes. And the natural world alone can tell you that. Again, all of the studies that we have, we've been studying family structure for several decades. Mm -hmm. We actually know an awful lot about who kids are, what they need, and the factors that will lead to their thriving. One of the greatest factors is being raised by both biological parents. And by definition, a same-sex couple can never grant children those advantages. So all of the studies that supposedly show that kids fare just as well, being raised by two moms or two dads, you can look at all of them and see major methodological flaws hmm. in the processes that they use to arrive at those conclusions. The two studies that you just listed, um, the, the Mark Rignera study and then the Sullins study, um, are use actual like gold standard of the scientific method that you learned in sixth grade. You know, they are major, like they use huge data pools. They are not recruited samples. Um, they are people that they found at random. They survey the actual experiences of the children themselves. A lot of these surveys that say kids fare just as well or they're no different. What the researchers do is they go to the two dads and they say, does your kid love having two dads? Oh, you? <laughs> fantastic. Hey, does your kid have any mental health issues? Oh, and by the way, we're going to use this study to advance certain legislation that you have an interest in. I mean, yes. like the ways that they conduct these studies, uh, like it is, it is a survey in researcher bias. That's really what it is. So we spend a lot of time, you know, in our first book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. We've got, I don't know, 300 studies listed in the footnotes of it. Like it is an ironclad airtight case for children's right to their mother and father. And that's why I began this conversation talking about what are children's rights? Why does biology matter? What is the male female differences? Because those things are indisputable. And if you thoroughly understand them, that is what it takes to answer all these other questions about divorce, same-sex parenting, cohabitation, reproductive technologies. When you understand who children are, how they come to be, what their rights are and what they need, you will get the right answer to all these questions immediately. Amazing, it's, um, it really is. And you know, um, in the Supreme Court, you, you said in your article here that I was quoting from in one of these, you said that when they said that same-sex marriage was the law of the land, they made male and female, mothers and fathers interchangeable. Mm -hmm. and. And it seems like, you know, um, we're seeing that now in, in all kinds of radical, drastic, uh, aggressive, ridiculous, harmful ways with kids as kids are being groomed into and recruited into transgenderism and then undergoing uh, transgender surgery and things like this, all with the idea that it's this bizarre notion that there is no male and female, that it's all uh, subjective, so you can be whatever you want, which is inherently illogical. How can you be something that doesn't exist? It, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me, but, but I think that's fascinating. And, but your counter to that was, you don't really need statistics. This is a matter of natural law. We just need right. to look at our reality. So kids, young children are looking around and they can see the difference between men and women, can't they? And they're yeah. wondering, where's my dad? Where's my that, mom? Who do I belong to? You're exactly right. And we say that all the time at Them Before Us, that you will, you can make whatever laws you want to make. You can create new novel technologies. You can say love makes a family over and over and over and over till you're blue in the face. You will never legislate away a child's longing to be known and loved by both their mom and dad. 
Wow. And we've got stories in our book of kids who grew up with two moms or two dads in very open and affirming and tolerant communities. They were, they were surrounded by adults saying, you're so lucky you have two moms. And they did have great moms. And yet they wanted a dad anyway. Like, not because someone told them, hey, you're missing something. It's because something arises in children spontaneously that says, why can't I have that? And this is not a question of modern family. This is a question of, are you a human child? Because these are the things that human children want. And to your point about redefining marriage, you know, we make the case at them before us regularly. When husband and wife become optional in marriage, in 100% of countries that make that, that decision, mothers and fathers become optional in parenting law. These two go together. And then immediately you see the rise of transgenderism. Why is that? Because if gender does not matter in marriage, it doesn't matter anywhere. Hmm. Gender matters most in marriage. So when you want to strip marriage, the only human relationship that produces and creates new life because of the gender distinctions, if marriage, if gender doesn't matter in marriage, why should it matter in a locker room? Why should it matter on a sports team? Why should it matter in a female prison, right? You lose marriage, you lose it all. Hmm. Wow, profound. Well, we've got a couple callers waiting on the line, and this is probably a great time to uh, let them chime in. So I want to first go to Robert in Florida, who's got a great question. It's on my list, but let's go ahead and go there, Robert. Thanks for calling in. What's your question today? Hi. Uh, so, Katie, the question I have is, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the scripture, James 4, 6, and it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I wanted to ask you, how can we turn this thing around so families can return to being normal again? Well, you're going to do it, Robert. <laughs> the answer is that you are going to do this. Uh, there is no hope that this turns around without the church. There's no other demographic out there that has the worldview to make the case for the natural family. And well, and let me back up even further. From a theological perspective, marriage and family is not even the primary question. The primary question is what does it mean to be human? That is the primary question. And all of the culture war issues that we're facing today, from abortion to euthanasia, to transhumanism, to transgenderism, to marriage, to reproductive technologies, all of them first begin with the question, what does it mean to be human? And only Christians, only Christians have the worldview that says you are made in the image of God, you are distinctly male and female, only God gives life and takes life, right? We are the only worldview that has those kinds of boundaries in place so that we can answer those questions in a way that lend themselves to human flourishing, not just utilitarianism and not just to a consent-based view of morality. Only Christians, are going to be able to turn this around. So we need the word of God, 100%. But we need to start arguing not just from the word of God, but using the world of God. And that is why at Them Before Us, we couch all of these arguments in natural law, social science, and the stories of kids. Because we're appealing to a universal authority, right? You and I recognize scripture as our ultimate authority, but your neighbor probably doesn't. We encourage you to make these arguments appealing to an authority under which they also live and must recognize, which is natural law. And so most Christians that read our book, 
it blows their mind because they go, oh my gosh, God's way is so good, right? We've always known what the word of God says. Then before us sort of gives the why behind it's so good. So the answer, Robert, is uh, become an expert on marriage and family and children, and please turn this around for us. <laughs> yeah, Robert, do you regret asking the question? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. The reason I don't is because in James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Receive with meekness the grafted word, which is able mm -hmm. to save our souls. And it continues in verse 22 by saying, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So I would just end on a note, Jeremiah 10, 23. It is not in the way of man to walk in his steps or, or order his own way. And I think Katie's right. Yeah. Wow. Great question. Thank you so much for calling in, uh, Robert. We really appreciate it. Before we go to our next caller, I just want to remind people about your book, Katie. Uh, it's called How to Raise Kids in a Woke City. Or Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. Sorry, I, I botched that. Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. And you actually are from Seattle, right? Uh, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's probably in a contest with San Francisco as to what's the wokest. But um, that, you can get a copy of it, folks, I think, at thembeforeus.com. Is that right? So our first book is Them Before Us, and that's all the marriage and family um, questions oh, okay. we've been discussing. The second book is my parenting book, how do you, that I co-wrote with my, uh, my co-author, Stacey Manning, how do you pass your worldview on to your kids when everything is lying to them, when the culture is totally against you? So those are my two offerings for today. The one that defends the children of the world and says, don't touch the kids, and the parenting book that says, don't touch my kids, leave my kids alone. So you actually have, we don't have an image of it. I'm sorry for, about that. We don't have an image of it, but your first book is Them Before Us, the same name as your ministry, right? Oh, do you have a copy there? Yeah, Them Before All Us. Right. Okay, yep. perfect. Yeah, all right, awesome. So folks, be sure to pick up these books on our website at thembeforeus.com. These sound like they're gonna be fantastic resources. Um, and we uh, have about 45 seconds before our next break here. Um, so we've got some callers on the line. We just wanna, um, we'll, we'll get right back to you guys, but I just wanna close out this segment by pointing out that God's way is always the best way. God's way is the right way. He designed us. It's what Katie was saying uh, from the beginning. It is not, and what, what our last caller said, it's really not in our, in our way, in ourselves to, to decide these questions for ourselves. God has made us. And when we deviate from his plan, uh, then harm and death and corruption enters in. And the word of God is 100% clear that he's prescribed uh, that, that uh, human sexuality is to be exercised only in the context of one man and one woman in marriage, unconditional covenant for life. And then children will come out of that union and they'll have the proper uh, framework for being raised in a, a healthy, loving, supportive family. But we'll come back to this after the break. Right now we're gonna share some important information with you guys. It'll be about 90 seconds and I'll be right back with Katie Faust. Are you in ministry and want to connect with other like-minded ministers? Andrew Womack founded the Association of Related Ministries International, or ARMY, to serve, equip, and empower you for success in your ministry through relationships, community, and resources. But just being a part of this, uh, being filled with the Word of God and with ARMY, fellowshipping, knowing that I have other ministers with me, it is awesome. We have met such precious people through Army. Uh, there's people I know I can call when I'm in a jam. 
ministers have a safe place to come. We can unify and unite for the kingdom. As an Army member, some of the benefits you'll enjoy are Bible teaching correspondence courses, regional advocates for personal support and ministry, regional events for networking, one-on-one ministry and encouragement, our monthly newsletter, and more. You don't have to do ministry alone. Join this growing network of dynamic and elite ministers from across the U.S. and around the world today. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. Welcome back to the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. My guest today is Katie Faust, the founder and president of uh, one of my new favorite organizations, Them Before Us. I'm so enjoying this conversation today. I hope you guys are too. I know that this is a, a lot of new material and, and it's coming fast and furious at you. So I want to encourage everybody again to check out the website, thembeforeus.com. Uh, is it .com? I think I don't have mm-hmm. it on my screen. .com. And uh, you can study this out at your own pace. But I, I just want you to take my word for it that the materials that are under those fast facts section there, uh, that would be great stuff for you to, you know, pull down, read, uh, highlight one or two things and, and use it. You know, send it in to your representative, send it in to your pastor. Start talking to people about these things. This is a a powerful way of looking at the most important issues of our day. All right. Well, Katie, we've got another caller on the line then. I'd like to go to him now if that's okay. Tim from Wisconsin has a question. Tim, thank you for calling. What's your question for Katie Faust? Hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Loud and clear. Okay. Um, My question is um, about frozen embryo adoption and um, what your thoughts are on encouraging Christian families to adopt frozen embryos from, you know, donor banks or, you know, clinics that, you know, promote that, you know. And, the re- and to give context to why I'm asking that question, my wife and I did that. And our son, who was a frozen embryo, is now almost seven years old. And we, we really have a heart for adoption. And, um, you know, Lorda actually put adoption on our hearts early in our marriage. And it was actually through some of Andrew Womack's teaching that at least opened my heart up to the idea of adoption. I think my wife had some interest in it before we were married. But anyway, um, we were actually read in a newsletter from a Christian healthcare ministry that we, you know, are a part of for our healthcare, and they were encouraging Christian families to consider adopting frozen embryos because there's all these embryos, like you guys are saying, out there in embryo banks, just sort of frozen in time. You know, sadly you know, often used for research. And the Holy Spirit really impressed on our hearts to check into this. And it was actually years later till they contacted us and said, hey, you know, you are on our list. You know, are you still interested in frozen embryo adoption? And we prayed about it again. And just the Lord just clearly spoke to us, you know, that we were supposed to go ahead with this. And, and we, and this, this just, it touches my heart so much because it's, you know, it, it it's something that's dear to my heart and I'm struggling to express my, my thoughts anyway. Um, so we went ahead with it and did the frozen embryo transfer and, and 
and our son Andrew was a is a very healthy, normal little boy, you know. And we talk openly in our family about it because, like I said, we have we have other adopted kids. We actually have nine adopted kids and one biological. And so, adoption is something that's very. I we feel it's very near to the heart of God because we're all adopted into God's family. It's something that God put on our hearts and. You know, our story with frozen embryo adoption is a very unique story in the adoption world because it's not, at least in our neck of the woods, it's not widely known about, I feel like. I'm just wondering how you would how you would encourage Christian families, if you would encourage Christian families to do frozen embryo adoptions and, you know, what your thoughts are on that, Richard. Well, Tim, I could just listen to you talk all day. Uh, I kind of just want to have you dial in, I'll dial out, and um, Richard can interview you for the rest of the time. So one of the things about adoption that makes it very distinct from reproductive technologies is in adoption, the adults do hard things on behalf of the children, right? With all of your children, probably your embryo adopted son as well, but certainly with your other children, you had to undergo screenings, vettings, background checks, home studies. Um, trainings, post-placement reports, and things like that, right? There was, adults are burdened on behalf of children in the world of adoption. In the world of big fertility, children are burdened on behalf of adults. It's children that have to do hard things on behalf of the intended parents. And it's the opposite in adoption. So the crazy part about embryo adoption, it is this strange hybrid. It's this teeny little overlap of those um, like concentric circles. Um, where you've got this big fertility, which is an industry, a child-destroying, child-designing, child-commodifying industry that overlaps with the institution of adoption that when done properly is going to be centered on the well-being of the child above all. So what do you do in that teeny little space? Well, first of all, it's very, very important to recognize that those embryos that are sitting in storage, just like anybody that makes a baby, it's not somebody else's job to raise the baby. If you make a baby, and even if they were unplanned, the solution is not first adoption. The solution is parenting, both the mother and the father, reorienting their life around that unplanned child so that the child can retain their right to life and retain their right to their mother and father. In a few tragic cases, sometimes the child will need to be adopted. It is the same thing with the 1.5 million embryos on ice. It is not somebody else's job to go and get them. The parents that made them are responsible to implant them and raise them. So we need to get that right, because if they don't, the child is going to suffer through the identity issues that a lot of these kids experience. The question is, what do you do with the ones that are abandoned, that are truly forsaken? And in those situations, the options are thaw and discard, donate to research, or donate to another couple. And I would say none of those options are child honoring. You want to not donate to them as if they are tissue or as if they are you know, an item at goodwill. You want to adopt them, not just transactionally. And unfortunately, the way we deal with embryos in our law is under property law. Right? The first time that Virginia ever categorized uh, a group of people as property since slavery is when they passed commercial surrogacy and they had to figure out how to categorize embryos. So it's not just treating children as property, it is treating them as the divine image bearers that they are and adopting them. And adults going through the adoption process, 
not just receiving them as donated items. So in a small sliver of cases, when the child has no hope of being raised by the two people that created them, then embryo adoption is the only child honoring option. But we, we have to be careful because what we don't want is we don't want to reinforce or reward the fertility industry for creating and storing so many surplus embryos to begin with. So, Katie, let me jump in, and Tim, don't don't hang up on us. Um, how does this work in the case of like Tim and his wife adoption? Does the uh, does the big fertility look and say, "Oh, look, we've got these extra frozen embryos. They've been around for a long time. Well, let's see if we can put these up for adoption." Is it the, is the initiative coming from them, or are parents like Tim and his wife? seeking out, seeking to adopt a child, and somehow in that process they get referred to this source. How, how does that work? Well, I'll, I'd love to hear your story, Tim, but the embryos belong to the commissioning parents, right? The people that created the contract and purchased the creation of the children. Sometimes it's the biological mother and father. Sometimes it's a single man who contributed his sperm, purchased 15 eggs, and the babies all belong to him. And there's the biological mother isn't in the, but if you paid for the kids, they're your kids. So what happens to the kids remains in the realm of that commissioning adult's um, purview. What do you do? And so they get to decide, do I want to donate them? Do I want to dispose of them? Do I want to donate them to research? Um, so the question is, you can't just take those kids from people that are still paying their storage fees. What do you do for the 20 to 40% that have been abandoned? And in those cases, the fertility clinic may then make those children available for donation or adoption. I see, all right. Well, that is a, that is a challenging scenario for sure. Um, uh, Tim, I, I just want to uh, affirm you and your wife in the courageous thing that you did in adopting your boy. Um, and I'm so thankful that it turned out well for you. And we just pray God's blessing on your family. Um, thank you for calling in with your question today. Um, kind of along these lines, Katie, I'd like to, to sort of, uh, you know, play a little bit of, I, I hate the phrase devil's advocate, but I, I want to, like, what about the the moms, the, the women in, out there, the, the couples say that can't conceive, you know, and they're struggling. And I mean, this is a heart wrenching issue for many, many couples. Um, and, and um, you know, they may have tried everything under the sun to try to have a baby and they can't have one. And they and and you and they might say to you, what, you know, this is pretty cold hearted of you, Katie. You saying we can't we can't we're out of luck. There's no way for us to have our own children here. Um, what's your response to that? If you're a Christian, you have a mandate to protect the least of these. Mm -hmm. There's about 39 verses in the Old Testament that mandates and creates special boundaries and care for the fatherless. So as a community and as believers in Christ, the fatherless are one of the four demographics that we specifically have been charged to care for. Now, the fatherless can be a child who is missing their father or orphaned completely. So we actually are mandated with child protection, especially for children that can't care for themselves. So first of all, we need to understand that as Christians, we are child-centric. We can empathize with and, and walk alongside adults who are suffering, but we are charged with child protection. And when you move into this world of reproductive technologies, when you move into the world of family redefinition, 
you're no longer talking about the world of child protection. You are now talking about manufacturing motherless and fatherless children, not protecting them, manufacturing them, normalizing, incentivizing, promoting mother and father loss. So I have not dealt with infertility, but all of us, whether or not we have personal experience with that, we are charged with child protection. We must empathize with our friends who are dealing with this incredible heartache. But just like all of us know how to empathize with and walk alongside a woman with an unplanned pregnancy who also is experiencing maybe debilitating emotions, maybe incredible fears, maybe you know overwhelming longings, we will say, we are here with you, we will walk with you. But your feelings don't ever justify violating a child's right to life. It is the same thing with infertility. Your longing, your God-given longing to be a mother or father does not justify violating a child's right to life by discarding or donating them to research or a child's right to be known and loved by their mother or father. Adult emotions do not override child rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and by participating in big fertility, are, are people unwittingly encouraging um, this commoditization of human life? Yes, indeed. Um, and I, I'm sure that there's some people that are wanting, that are on the phone that are saying, well, what if we do this ethically? What if we do it without discarding any child's right to life? What if we use our own sperm and egg? Um, well, you can. And from a technical perspective, from a children's rights perspective, I know adults who have said, we're going to only create the number of embryos we're going, that we're going to immediately implant. We're not going to use a donor. Um, good luck. You will fight your fertility doctor and the entire industry the entire way. And you probably don't have enough money for that. You probably only have enough money to do one round of embryo creation so that you can do multiple rounds of implantation. Um, they will advise against it because it is going to wreck their success rate. Um, and it's honestly, it means that you're going to use their services less. And this is about money. This is not a benevolent nonprofit that wants you to have a baby. This is a for-profit industry. And, and um, similar to abortion, uh, you know, when we're counseling women facing unplanned pregnancy, um, you know, uh, adoption is one of the life-giving options. And is it also something that we, that parents have with, or, or potential parents with fertility issues ought to consider? Yes, you can. But we again take a very child-centric view of adoption. That adoption is not a means to complete your family. Adoption does not exist for you. Adoption does not exist for adults. It doesn't exist for infertile adults. It doesn't exist for same-sex couples. Adoption is not a way for adults to get kids. Mm. Adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. Adoption, as it's properly understood, is a means for children to be placed with loving bedded homes that in as many cases as possible will furnish them with a mother and father that have been screened and vetted and will secure their God-given need for a home. So Tim did it exactly right. Adoption is a calling. It's not a way to fulfill your longing, even though sometimes those two things will go together. Sure. Adoption, especially from the Christian perspective, is that child has lost something they have a natural right to. Very likely the child has a primal wound, a, a pain that is going to impact them the rest of their life. 
you as the adult need to say, I am going to bear their burden, which means you are going to be burdened, right? You are getting into adoption, not because it's going to serve you, but it's going to serve them. So that mentality about adoption is very, very important. Because again, we need to go into this with a child-centric perspective, not a, this is good for me, but this is good for them. Sure. Well, let me go to an, um, another caller uh, that's on the line, Katie. AJ from Colorado uh, is calling in. What's your question, AJ? Hey, Richard and Katie. Um, on January 2nd, we had the biblical worldview, and Bishop E.W. Jackson was talking about fatherlessness in the homes. Katie, I was wondering, what would you do to keep fathers from leaving the homes and women getting on welfare? Yeah, well, we need a total overhaul. The first thing that we could do is not tell men that they're optional in the family. That's number one. And we've communicated that legislatively through things like no-fault divorce going back to the 60s and 70s. And then we made them literally optional when we redefined marriage. And the thing about men is when they become optional, they leave. Like the whole world is messaging to them, you're not necessary. In fact, you just might be toxic. So the cultural messages have been very anti-male. The legal decisions have been very anti-male when it comes to like family formation. Um, and the entire country is suffering because of it. So what do we need to do? We need to change hearts and we need to change laws. Like we have to do both of them. We have to message properly that men, you are not optional in the life of your child. Nobody, no other woman, no other man is going to be able to do for your child what you can do for your child by committing to that child's mother. You are irreplaceable in the life of your child. So that has to be the cultural message that we speak. But then we have got a lot of work to do on the legal front to overhaul no-fault divorce, So, which right now is a very anti-father um, process. And we need to get back to the place where we are incentivizing men to commit to the women they are making babies with and stay with them for life, which is original, the original purpose of marriage. So we've got work to do on the cultural front, work to do on the legal front. And then, of course, all these technologies that make men optional from the moment of conception need to be banned completely. Thank you, AJ, for your question. Katie, let's talk about um, one man and one woman, biological parents in the home. What, uh, why, is that, why is that the best way? Why does that produce the best outcomes for kids? Well, if you are asking an evolutionary biologist, what they would say is, um, you know, this is just from a strictly like scientific, in their words, perspective, that there seems to be, unfortunately, preferential treatment for your own genetic offspring. And they've actually coined a phrase for the risk that children experience when they are raised by unrelated adults. And the phrase is the Cinderella effect. So you can probably guess what that looks like. And that is drastically unequal or sometimes neglectful or even abusive or homicidal treatment towards children that are not related to you. Unfortunately, either because of our evolutionary processes or our awful sin nature, just because there is an adult in your home does not mean they are going to treat you as if you are their own son or daughter. So we have very measurable, and, and chapter two in Them Before Us is filled with statistics 
on how unrelated adults invest less money in child's education, bequeath less money when they die, spend less time with unrelated children, buckle the seatbelts of stepchildren less, spend less money on food of children in their home that are not biologically related, and of course, um, rates of child abuse and filicide, that is child homicide, are drastically higher. In fact, you know, if your audience just wants to like fact check me here, they can Google the words mother's boyfriend right now, right? An unrelated man that is sharing living spaces with children is statistically the most dangerous person in a child's life. So why is it that God's design for sex and marriage where they commit to one another before they have sex, they only have sex within that union, they stay together for life. If everybody did that, we would decimate rates of child abuse and neglect, right? Mm -hmm. It is such a pro-child institution when you do it God's way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on one of your fact sheets on your website, I've got, I'm looking at it here and you've got some statistics that are really mind blowing. Um, it shows the number, number of instances per 1000 children for different uh, family arrangements uh, for sex abuse, emotional abuse and physical abuse. So married uh, biological parents, uh, let's just take one of these and we'll just uh, do physical abuse. 1.9 kids out of 1,000 suffer physical abuse. If you go to a single parent, that number jumps up to 5.9. If you go to unmarried parents, so you've got parents, but they didn't bother to get married. It they're goes up to, they're, yeah, they're cohabiting. It's 8.2 per 1,000. That's four times, over four times higher than married. Um, Neither parent. Now, I suppose that means that uh, they're living with other adults, right? And yeah, maybe uh, that grandparents or something like that. Yeah, six point eight. There, other married parents. Nine point eight. Now, what is that category? Well, the parents are married, but they're not married to the child's other biological parent. I so see. So, like a blended okay. family situation. A stepfather, stepmother kind of thing. So it jumps up to 9.8 per thousand for physical abuse. And then here's the worst of all, which is a single parent with a partner, like you said, mother's boyfriend. The physical abuse rate there, according to this chart, is 19.5. Basically, 20 kids out of 1,000 will suffer physical abuse in that scenario. So um, what's, uh, again, you know, what's the bottom line here for us as the church? I think, um, you know, uh, pastors probably need to do a better job of teaching on this subject for one thing. The bottom line is, if you compromise one iota on what God says about sex and marriage, you're victimizing children. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. God's design for sex and marriage is plan A for child protection and thriving. And wow. one of the projects we have coming out this year is we've got a church curriculum that we're developing, a small group curriculum, a seven part video series where we walk through all these different topics and we connect it to scripture. It's the only thing that we have where we are going to directly talk to Christians. So that's why I'm like, get on our newsletter, subscribe so that you know when this curriculum is out and then, and then use it, encourage your pastor to use it. I mean. Right now in our country, we have uh, the status of children has been so degraded. Like we have reduced functionally, we've reduced them to accessories to be cut and pasted into any and every adult relationship. We are putting their lives at risk. We are putting their academic, their emotional, their physical well-being at risk. And it's because 
we are failing to articulate the why behind what God says when it comes mm. to sex and marriage. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, how do people get on your mailing list? Go to the website. I think if you go to the very bottom, you can subscribe. Uh, but we're, I'm so sick of playing defense. I'm so sick of just talking about why these are, I mean, like, I, we are done. We are done. It is time for kids to have a full throated apologetic on who they are and what they need. And we're, we're going all out. Like we've got our church curriculum coming out next year. We're co-producing a documentary with focus on the family. We've got a legal pathway where we're going to try to, oh, we're going to try to make some positive progress instead of just failing less often, which is kind of how conservatives have, have ruled on marriage and family issues. You know, we're fighting big fertility. Um, we're going to the corporate world, like we're going to fight big corporations and how they're working to overhaul wow. the family and violate the rights of kids. So like, I'm just so sick. I'm so sick of sitting back and doing nothing. Wow. Well, man, that, that sounds awesome. You'd be sure to let us know here at Truth and Liberty when that um, Bible study program is ready and available. And I'll I will do everything I can to spread the word for you on that. And uh, folk, folks, go to Katie's website, then before us, sign up to her newsletter. I know all of us have a jillion emails coming in all the time, but what's more important, what could possibly be more important than, than children and marriage and family in our culture today? This is just huge. Um, and so, um, Katie, when we're talking about this subject, we have to talk about divorce. You, you, you raised it up. You, you're one of the only people I've heard in, I don't know, last 10 years, criticize no-fault divorce. I mean, it's not done anymore. It used to be, people would say, but, but we've pretty much surrendered that turf to the enemy. Um, what are the harms that kids face in divorce? Is it, I mean, it, it, we kind of live under this delusion today. It seems like, the, oh yeah, you can get divorced and your kids will be fine. You just share custody, um, have visitation, do these other things. And, and we seem to be okay with it. Are you, it, I, it sounds like you're not okay with that. And tell me what the harm is that kids inevitably face. I am not okay with that. Um, and then before us, our first book, all of chapter five is the harms of divorce. What divorce does to a child's physical body, their emotions, their future relational health, their academic performance, um, their mental well-being. Mm -hmm. So you cannot, it impacts child on every metric of health. And nobody's even studying divorce anymore. I mean, it's so 1980s and 90s. And so we don't have a lot of new research, but the old research is damning about the impact that it has on kids. So what's the problem with divorce? Well, in the before us, we say there's three staples of a child's social emotional diet. Three things they have to feast on every day if they are going to be properly formed and be able to thrive as adults. Those three things are mother's love, father's love, and stability, okay? So what does divorce do? It starves yeah. them of at least 50% of mother's love, at least 50% of father's love, and usually stability is completely gone, right? Either they're bouncing between mom and dad's home or in many cases, the non-custodial parent disappears from the child's life altogether. Then dad might have another girlfriend move in, mom might remarry over here, dad then has a baby, but then, you know, cohabiting relationships, they don't last very long, so now, that woman moves out, but the baby's still there half time. But mom with her new husband, now they're gonna move to another state. They're only gonna see mom every summer instead of every other weekend. I mean, like, 
instability is a feature of a child's life post-divorce. And what happens to a child? Well, we have one study that shows that children who lose their father to divorce, death, or incarceration, it actually shortens the length of their telomeres, the end caps of their chromosomes responsible for health and longevity. Divorce impacts children on the cellular level. Wow. It impacts their mental health, right? That girls especially who have sort of a pre-existing disposition to mental health are more likely to be bipolar if their, kid, if their parents divorce. It impacts children's academic health, right? You can actually see rates of high school graduation decline when you've got family fragmentation and divorce is one of the many ways kids experience that. But I think the finding that shocked me the most was a study that showed that about 50% of kids who grow up in two different homes develop two different personalities. Hmm. Kids literally have to become a different person on the drive from dad's house to mom's house because dad is a strong Christian conservative. But mom is a liberal, like Buddha worshiping free spirit. <laughs> and like they, they, they have to remember to keep different secrets. They have different dietary, they have different screen limits. I mean, like they have to transform into a different person, you know, between yeah. Tuesday and Wednesday night. So divorce is awful. And honestly, the church lost a lot of credibility on the marriage issue because we said, kids need moms and dads during same-sex marriage. But we haven't said a peep about divorce, which yeah. by the numbers is wrecking more lives than same-sex parents are. And, and uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time now for today's show. Uh, I, you know, I think also on the divorce, kids, um, they're forced into a divided loyalty situation. They're 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 forced into um, you know a life of conflict uh, and and being a surrogate for mom and for dad in the wars that happen there. Not to mention it wrecks their value system for commitment, loyalty, and unconditional love. Um, and and it's just absolutely awful. And I am so thankful that you are standing up on these issues. I want to encourage you, Katie, not to quit, um, no matter the response that you get, because I think the work you're doing is courageous and awesome. And again, guys, check out her website at thembeforeus.com. And uh, don't forget to tune in to Monday's Truth and Liberty show. Uh, I'm going to be hosting again, and my guest uh, on Monday is going to be Torben Sondergaard. You might remember about a year or a year and a half ago, I had Torben on from jail. Torben, a Danish uh, man who fled to the United States seeking asylum because of religious persecution, was arrested by the Biden administration and wrongfully imprisoned here. Well, He's out of jail. I don't know where he is in some other country, but we're going to hear all what happened to him uh, in the rest of his time in jail and since then. All right. Well, thanks for watching, everybody. We'll see you again on Monday's Truth and Liberty live call-in show. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.